This past year, we featured several impressive farmers on this show. Today, I'm going to share some highlights of their perspectives, advice, and ambitions for the future of agriculture. The most expensive words in agriculture, that's the way we've always done it. There's a whole bunch of little changes you can make to make astronomical differences in your bottom line. These leaders reveal valuable advice for other farmers, but also useful insights for really anyone in the ag industry. In today's ag world, it's all about market access. Our dream for the farm and the facility is to be able to purchase from other farmers after teaching them how to grow these specialty crops. Now, warning, you probably won't agree with everyone. In fact, I don't think they all agree with each other. But I bet you'll find at least one comment that really makes you think. We have to find systems that are truly meaningful in actually reducing carbon footprint. The folks that I thought were always against me were really with me. The farm should be part of a transformation of cities towards sustainability and circularity. The topics we'll cover are as varied as the hats these farmers wear, from sustainability to markets to people to data. It's really hard to lead people when you're tired. If you could measure everything that's out there, what would you uncover that you didn't know? Spend some time inside the minds of farm business leaders on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to sit down with the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors shaping the future of the ag industry. Today's a cool episode. It's approaching the end of 2022, and I wanted to reflect on the year. One thing that definitely stood out to me was the amount of episodes I put in this sort of like farm strategy category. And so I went back and listened to all of them, pulled out some insights. I think you're going to really appreciate uh, this episode and appreciate hearing their perspectives. Today's episode and really every episode this quarter is made possible thanks to the support of our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is Sound Agriculture. This is a great time to talk about their source product because just about everywhere you look, fertilizer prices have been high and in some cases availability itself has been a real problem. So finding a better source of crop nutrients going forward is on top of a lot of people's minds. Well, believe it or not, that nutrient source might just be your soil. Source from Sound Agriculture unlocks more of the nutrients already in your fields so you can apply less fertilizer while getting the yield you're counting on. Source is a foliar applied biochemistry that activates soil microbes to unlock more nitrogen and more phosphorus. It works with the soil you've already got and the equipment you already use to wake up the soil so you could consider it like caffeine for microbes. Visit sound.ag to learn more and make sure you stay tuned to the end of today's episode because our final innovative farmer that we'll feature here today is Kelly Garrett. And Kelly and agronomist Mike Evans are both going to talk directly about their experience with this source product. We're putting too much synthetic in into our high yielding no-till soils. We are constantly amazed at how much elemental in can be released. So we either need to turn down the nitrogen or we need to figure out a way to add carbon. Well, obviously, from an input cost perspective, why wouldn't we turn down the nitrogen? We are turning down that nitrogen, adding source, and on a 300-acre trial, we had a 24-bushel yield gain. And I truly believe, Tim, it's because we're bringing that ratio back into balance. 
All right, stay tuned for more from Kelly Garrett and Mike Evans. And thank you once again to Sound Agriculture for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right. Well, as I said, it's late in the year. And as I reflected on the year, uh, one of the themes that emerge has been the insights that I've received personally. And you all, if you've listened to this podcast from ag producers that have been on the show, we feature a lot of ag tech, ag business, other thought leaders in the space. But just the producer episodes alone really have been insightful. And this has really uh, been something that we set out to do. I don't know if you remember, but a year ago or so, I said I wanted to do more episodes about sort of farm level strategy. What are farmers thinking in terms of growing their business? What are their needs? Uh, What are they wrestling with? What are they thinking uh, about the future of agriculture? And I'm really happy about the topics that we explored in this area. So today, here's a compilation of some of those insights from a handful of those episodes this past year. As I went back and listened to about a dozen or so of these episodes, uh, I pulled some highlights specifically related to things like growing and managing a modern farm business, the role of small farms versus large farms in the future of agriculture, uh, the importance of markets and market access, and how that's a bottleneck for progress uh, really on a number of fronts. Also, how these leaders are leveraging data in their operations and the paradigm shift of starting to look at farms as not only food and fiber producers, but uh, also ecosystem services providers as well. You're going to hear from some of the sharpest business minds in agriculture on all of these topics and much, much more in today's episode. And we'll start with Saskatchewan farmer and entrepreneur Christian Hebert, who appeared on episode 302, and I ended up making two episodes out of it. So it ended up being 302 and 303. And he really changed my perception of farming operations striving to get larger. Uh, At that time, his company was responsible for about 30,000 acres and growing. Not sure if that's changed or not. But here's what Christian says is part of his key motivation to want to grow. And it's something that I'd been overlooking. You know, I just look at it, do what you're really good at. And to be honest, you know, originally everyone kind of thought we were expanding because I cared about acres when I didn't feel that I could create the right team at a small acre number. Right. I had to have a bunch of general. If I only had one person working for me, their job description was kind of do whatever I tell you to do when I tell you to do it. And so I truly feel that as we got larger, I was able to have more specialization and that, you know, at least 80 percent of the time my crew can be doing what they enjoy doing and they're best at. And I don't think that matters if you're a kid or you're an adult or you're playing sports or you're going to work at a farm or recording podcasts. You do a way better job and you're way more efficient if you love what you're doing. And I think that makes so much sense that as a farm business scales, you're going to be able to offer more of those specialist type opportunities where people can thrive in their work and really enjoy what it is they do. And this specialist role also applies to business owners and managers as well. Greg Bethard is the CEO of High Plains Ponderosa Dairy in rural southwest Kansas. He joined guest co-host Jeanette Barnard on episode 317 and talked about his learnings, similar to Christian, about getting the right people but also taking care of himself as the leader of those people. You know, I read a book uh, probably three years ago. Our, our board actually read the book, and it was called No Man's Land. And, and that book was about businesses are heading into a growth period and, and what things do you need to put in place before the growth period. And the overwhelming advice of the author was you need to get high-level people in your organization before you start an ambitious growth phase and get the top people in first and then, and then let them hire the people under you. So we did that and we, we brought in some really good people that run the operation. So I, I probably spend maybe 20, 25% of my time on operations and probably 
20, 30% of my time on, on the business and, and probably the rest of the time on growth right now. You know, so I'm prioritizing a lot of time. And I, I believe very strongly in the uh, Warren Buffett theory of, of how to do things and that he reads and reads and reads. And, and I try to devote a certain amount of time every day to read, just read everything I can get my hands on about markets and, and about new ideas and new interests. I like to read about things outside of our industry. Just I think that really helps me a lot to get focused on, on new ideas and, and new possibilities. You know, I also had a good piece of advice from a friend of mine that first summer we were struggling. He came to visit me, uh, another fellow dairyman, and he saw that I was very tired and overworked. And I thought the way to fix our problems on a dairy was to work harder and work more hours. And he said to me, he's like, you know, Greg, it, it's really hard to lead people when you're tired. And I took that to heart. So I owe it to all my colleagues here and all my coworkers and to this business to show up every morning with a good night's sleep, ready to go to work with a fresh mind and a fresh attitude. But business growth, especially in an industry like agriculture, certainly doesn't happen overnight. Going back to Christian Hebert, he says he benefited greatly by applying the 5% rule, which he learned from Dr. Danny Kleinfelter of the Executive Program for Agricultural Producers, or TPAP program. If you have a good business, there's a whole bunch of little changes you can make to make astronomical differences in your in your bottom line, right? And so the, the example I always used to use because it was easy math was a 5% change, you know, in a 40 bushel canola crop is two bushels. So do you think you can find a way to grow two more bushels? And everyone would, you know, would say yes. And this was back when canola is only worth 10 bucks. So you'd be like, can you find a way to sell your canola for 50 cents more? Yeah, yeah, no, I can do that. You know, and then if you take your fixed costs at the time, we'd say, could you find a way to save 5% in fixed costs? And, you know, back then it calculated that that was about a 16 or $17 an acre savings. But the issue was, is in Canada, the benchmark for farms was a $50 an acre profit. And, and I mean, for some comparison to the U.S., you got to remember at the time in Canada, the average acre was probably only worth $1,500 or $2,000 an acre, right? So it's all comparable. But if, if you grew two more bushels and sold it for 50 cents more and dropped $17 off your fixed costs, your profit actually went from $50 to 107 So it was north of 100% change in your profitability. And so it's how those compounding changes, right? When you're in an acre type business that's a commodity business, if you can find little changes on how to grow revenue and reduce fixed costs, it compounds over every acre. And when you compound and multiply it, like I said, you can take three, 5% changes that some people would say should only change my business by 15%. And it was north of 100% change in your profitability. I think this is a really helpful framework that makes growth seem attainable and really manageable for anyone interested in taking that path. But I should note here that not all farmers we featured this year are focused on growth or, or have made it a priority, and that's okay. The future of agriculture, as we say often, will be a patchwork of solutions, and I believe there's a lot of room for creative approaches, both at scale to very large uh, volumes and very large sizes, but also those that remain small. Mike and April Clayton shared their experiences on episode 333. They grow about 150 acres of apples and cherries in Washington state. Growth for their model is tough. The price of orchards is at an all-time high. Um, in our neighborhood, they're starting to go for around $40,000 an acre, and then usually they need to be replanted. 
And so this has driven us out of the market of purchasing more land. Um, we did expand a lot after the mid-1990s, and uh, we were able to pick up some neighbors who got out of the business. But right now, in order to expand your farm, you're going to be bidding against these big corporations to get that land. And I don't see us buying any more farmland, to be honest with you. The one thing about expansion is when you expand, you have to increase labor. So for us right now, that's my hem and haw over it. Um, you know, our niche used to be organic until 2016. So it's trying to find that new niche. Is it a different variety that's going to carry you through to get more money? Or, you know, is it going to be something other than organic? You know, is regenerative going to come and be a player? And Paul Grieve from Pasture Bird has seen this from both sides, first as a small upstart poultry company in Southern California, and now as part of the major protein supplier Purdue Farms, which acquired Pasture Bird in 2019. Although he's somewhat of a disruptor, Paul said on episode 299 that he really does see the importance in what both small local ag and quote unquote big ag bring to the table. We started in 2012, we started with a really small local direct-to-consumer, you know, mixed livestock business called Primal Pastures. Still exists today. I love the business. Probably have, you know, a thousand customers that we sell to. My family owns and runs it still. I kind of got bummed out though. So three years into that, we're doing okay. We're making money and um, we're growing the business. But I started to feel like we're just kind of selling food to rich people a little bit. And I love our customer. And don't get me wrong, but I grew up really like square in the middle class. And we're selling these chickens for $35, you know, $40. And that's kind of like what we had to do to be able to stay financially sustainable or regenerative or what do you want to say? It's fine. Like we were selling the product for what we needed to sell it for. But so many families, including my own when I was growing up, like could never afford to pay that kind of a price. And so it's not that I don't think small scale, local regenerative ag is important. Like I think it is. But if we really want to change the world and like leave an impact, I would love for our kids to fall in on something that looks different maybe than how it looks right now, or at least a different trajectory with some other options on production. So it just came very clear to me and my brother-in-law and kind of like some other people in my family that it's not that small scale is not important. It's just helping these big ag companies do something differently is also a really noble task. It's a good thing to focus on. They have, you know, all kinds of efficiencies and resources that I don't care what we do, we'll never have. They've figured a lot of things out. I mean, look at just the feed pans that they have. There's so much technology that goes into just that one tiny piece of the equation alone. It's stupid for us to just think it has to be one or the other. It's either small scale or it's huge industrial kind of, you know, factory farming, if you're open to that word, I guess. Which to me, factory farming just means you're producing as cheap and efficient as possible. And that's kind of what people have asked for for a long time. The interesting thing to me is people are starting to ask for something different. And so I think you see these big ag companies wanting to produce what people are asking for. At the end of the day, you know, they're businesses. Like they want to produce a product that people want. So for 30, 40 years, people asked for cheap chicken and they got cheap chicken. Like Big Ag did a really, really, really good job of giving cheap chicken. Now I think people are coming in tune with this idea of like, 
it's not all about just cheap. Like it does need to come at a good cost or a good price, but we're looking for other attributes. And those other attributes offer more opportunities for producers to be something other than just the largest, lowest cost producer. Also in sort of the mobile grazing business, we visited with Zach Smith on episode 306, who's a farmer and the founder of Stock Cropper. Their first product integrates animals with row crops via the Cluster Cluck, a multi-species solar-powered, electrically driven, autonomous mobile grazing system. It's meant to fit in between rows of wide row corn. Broadly speaking, Zach sees two potential paths ahead for farmers. So there's going to be two paths in agriculture in the future. There's going to be the path of like the chase of commodity, low cost production, grow as much as you can. And then there's going to be an alternative path where you're focused on trying to grow uh, something that's more value added. And that's really the space that I'm interested in. And I think, you know, I talked about the 160 acre increment. I mean, this is a system that I think if we can get our cost to where we think we can get them on these barns, that we can design a farming system that could market to consumer classes where you could make a living on 160 acres instead of needing 1600 or 16,000. And so are we going to bring things back to where they were in 1953 when there was a family on every quarter section? No, I don't think so. But I'm very interested in the space of being able for those that, you know, maybe uh, want to be in production agriculture, but their family only owns 80 acres or 160. So can you afford to have a a $400,000 combine to farm that in the current paradigm? No, absolutely not. But if you could have a system where you could have equipment that could help you create value on that smaller acreage and a system to market that to people that want that, that's really what I'm interested in. And part of the appeal to this system, beyond just the ability to make a business out of fewer acres, is the fact that it capitalizes on circularity. For farms to be truly sustainable in the sense that we're drastically reducing inputs relative to outputs, this sort of closed loop system or this circularity is essential. Here's Zach again. You know, we want to make a closed loop system where basically, you know, we're producing our own fertility with the animals. We're producing our own feed stuff. We could have our own mill on the farm. So you look at the system now, I grow corn, it goes to an ethanol plant. Okay, they make ethanol, they make DDGs, the DDGs get trucked to a feedlot, you know, they feed it through a cow that, you know, blah, 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 blah. And you're just moving stuff all over the place. And so when we talk about like low carbon footprint farming systems, you know, we're all, everyone's trying to like lash onto these silly trinkets, you know, like carbon solutions in a jug. Like we have to find systems that are truly meaningful in actually reducing carbon footprint. And when you're looking at what we're doing, you know, we're, we're basically using the sun to move a machine across that is allowing animals to do the work that replacing all of these carbon intense applications and using epigenetics and the expression of plants in different arrangements to create a heck of a lot of value that most people in this ag space don't think about on a daily basis. Well, I love this way of thinking about closed loop systems and how we think about things, not just in our part, but how we fit into the entire system and make it more sustainable. I think it's something we should all strive to at least think about more often. In fact, it could go even further. Uh, farms can serve as a way to close the loop for cities. We heard about this from Peter Van Vingerden in episode 308, who created the world's first floating dairy farm in the port of Rotterdam in the Netherlands. The farm is not only sustainable, but it demonstrates how animal agriculture can help make cities more sustainable. We work with uh, residual streams from the city that goes through the cows, like bread from the Turkish bakery, like orange peels 
like grass from the football stadium over here, grass from the golf courses, rest products from the food bank. So all these products that comes to us, we measure the protein, the vitamins, the fibers, the fat percentages, we mix it, and then it goes to the cows. And the end product, so the cows produce two products, that is obviously milk, but also manure. And we upgrade the manure to organic fertilizer, and it goes also back to the city, like the dairy goes back to the city. So our footprint is almost zero over here on uh, sustainability. We collect rainwater from the roof. We turn it into drinking water for the cows. So everything is completely happening within the city. And uh, all transportation we do with electrical cars is in the city. It is an integral part of city design, living, working, recreation, and food production. So this farm is an essential element of city design. So we founded a word uh, that's called transformation. A farm should be part of a transformation of cities towards sustainability and circularity. Now, I realize that concepts like this, a floating dairy farm located right in a city that plays an important role in circularity, it all might seem a little bit far-fetched, but Peter is demonstrating that it is possible. And that's the thing with all of these producers that I'm featuring here today that we featured on the show. They're doing something that somewhere along the way, someone else has made me think is not possible. Uh, at the end of episode 338, we did a spotlight of Maryland farmer Trey Hill. He reminded me that there's so much more potential for agriculture if we can think optimistically, collaborate, and start looking for common solutions. We got mandated nutrient management plans 23 years ago. I think 99 was my first year, 98. I think we started doing them a couple of years as a precursor to the mandate. I don't know. I don't like mandates and I don't like regulation, but I think it helped because it, it fixed the folks that were over applying. Um, we made some adjustments within our own fertility programs that were for the better. Um, I don't feel like it really limits us in yields unless you get into some irrigated strategies where you're looking at, you know, like really high bushels per acre. And then what really sealed it up was the cover crop program was the easiest because if you look at climate smart farming, it's no tilling cover crops, right? I mean, it's really not complicated. Like everyone wants to overcomplicate and nitrogen reductions, but nitrogen efficiency, but we're doing nitrogen pretty efficiently anyway. So getting paid to do cover crops makes it really easy to make the decision to do cover crops. So I would say that was the easiest one. Um, there's a bunch of different programs out now where people are trying to get this money to do it. You know, I did Equip, but it's a three-year program and cover crops are tough to make pay. Um, it's a lot of extra work in the fall. It's really puts a burden on you in the fall. Um, we've dedicated to do it, but having that continual monetary amount coming back to us to pay for it makes it a lot easier to hire a person, makes it a lot easier to justify putting all those acres on my drill to you know have to rebuild it and all that stuff. And then it gives you the time to to really allocate to learning. So that was the best. And we engaged a lot of the, I work with a lot of the environmentalists myself personally and have really enjoyed it. If you had told me 20 years ago that I would be saying this today, I would have, I would have you know, would have thrown you out of the room, but been on the Riverkeeper boards. We combined three Riverkeepers and made one bigger Riverkeeper organization because I farm on all three rivers and I helped formulate this new group as part of the leadership team. I work with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and I found that the folks that I thought were always against me were really with me. You know, as, as, as you go, if you, I like to, do analogies. Like if you do it to cycling, like I always thought they were just putting a headwind on me or making me go uphill when really I found that they were trying to put a hand on my back and help me up that hill. So I think that a lot of it was just a passion. They were like, Trey, what do we need to do? 
you know, they said, Trey, why don't you just do cover crops? If you just did cover crops, the bay would be cleaner. I said, well, if you pay me to do it, then I'll do it. And you get into the whole subsidy argument and you can argue it all you want. But if you're doing a social good, it's often presented wrong to farmers because it's framed as a subsidy. And I'm going, no, the guy that blacktops the road out front is doing a public good and he's getting paid for it to make a living. If a farmer is planting cover crops, he is doing a public good to help make the water cleaner. Therefore, getting paid for it is not charity. It is not welfare. It is me getting paid to do a job. And that way of thinking and talking about it kind of gets the environmental community on it because I don't, you don't want the other side saying, hey, we're giving you money. You want to be able to say, hey, I'm earning this money because I'm providing a service. And I think getting some of that language worked out on both sides, like I'd go to the environmentalist and I'd say, hey, look, if you go tell a farmer he's doing things wrong, you're insulting his whole family. They'd go, what do you mean? And I'd go, well, I learned from my father. <laughs> so if you tell me what I'm doing is wrong, you need to use different language here, guys. You need to say, hey, we're going to make it so that you can do the same thing, but do it better. And we're going to pay you to do it. And from the farmer side, it was the same thing. It was like, don't get defensive if someone says what you're doing can be improved because there's always room for improvement. That's life. And I think getting kind of those conversations going in the right direction was key. And then as you go to ask for funding, you know, for us, it was the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and our farmer organization. So if you have Farm Bureau and Chesapeake Bay Foundation agreeing on something, that's unheard of. But it's a pretty easy choice for a politician because you're even in very divisive politics. That's kind of a net gain for for everyone. So I'd say that was the biggest lessons I've learned. And as a state, we've probably learned is that working together in collaboration, you know, you hear those buzzwords all the time, but I mean, it works or it's worked for us. And like I said, we get dedicated funding for cover crops. We have mandated nutrient management plans, which you could argue are bad. And I get audited and I have to keep records and all these things. But I mean, I've been doing it 20 some years and, and, uh, I'm still in business and, um, you know, we deal with it when I get an audit, it sucks because <laughs> they go through everything on your farm. We've been able to keep them private, which has been the big fight. We haven't been fighting about it lately, but over the years, you know, some years they do, some years they don't. And Trey touches on something here that has really become clear to me this past year. Arguably the two biggest factors with the potential to really impact the future of agriculture are number one, policy. And number two, market access. And if we go back to Greg Bethard of High Plains Ponderosa Dairy in Kansas for just a minute, he talked about their impressive beef on dairy program. In other words, using artificial insemination to breed dairy cows with beef genetics to raise up that beef and sell it as a whole nother revenue stream. And he used it as an example of how new ideas and new ventures in agriculture need market access. In today's ag world, it's all about market access. You can't just build a dairy and hope somebody buys your milk. You can't just start raising cattle and, and hope one of the packers will buy your cattle at the end. You know, you, you've got to have markets. So that's to me what this is all about is getting consistent, high quality product that a packer can depend on that a customer can depend on. And then, man, they're, they're going to want our cattle. Once they want our cattle, then I think we're in a really favorable position. And this is something Michigan farmer Claire Smith knows all too well. She had to take a big leap of faith by planting ancient grains without an established market already in hand. But after seeing the value of the end product and how well it fit into her rotation, she was determined to develop a market for herself. So in episode 322, she shared the story of Tefola with guest co-host Jennifer Barney. The granola-like product utilizes ancient grains like teff and buckwheat. Claire hopes she can grow the company to provide new markets for surrounding farmers as well. 
our dream for the farm and the facility is to be able to purchase from other farmers after teaching them how to grow these specialty crops. And so not only then are we improving the stability and longevity of our farm, but we're able to teach other farmers in the area who are being you know, walloped by this cash crop market and give them some more stability as well. And so if Tefola takes off or when Tefola takes off and we have multiple product lines and we're going through truckloads of grain, you know, every couple months, then we're able to reach out to, you know, our neighbors up the street who have been growing corn, wheat and soybeans and alfalfa and say, this is what we can pay for buckwheat. And, you know, you have a guaranteed buyer before you put seeds in the ground which is incredibly important as a farmer to have a buyer. And then we can give them that assurance that we'll take whatever you grow. And we didn't have that kind of assurance when we started. We were just putting seeds into the ground and, you know, a wing and a prayer that it would work out. And extremely lucky that it has worked out. We are extremely lucky. And in some ways, like it's a fluke, but it's not a fluke. Like we were able to put seeds in the ground without a buyer and it has worked out. So that's what we want to be able to offer for other farmers so that we can address the scalability of this and, again, make it more profitable and, yeah, that stability for the farm. Claire is the seventh generation in her family to farm in Michigan. She represents a generation that is generally not afraid to bring new ideas to the family business and look at things in a different way. In our spotlight segment of episode 340, Nebraska farmer Jesse Pella talked about this topic by describing how he approaches problems in a more analytical way to look at return on investment and return on his time. I have focused a lot more on just the previous generation, they're workers. They just like to work. They'd work through any problems. I've always been the approach that I don't want to do it like the financial aspects that a lot of them did it back then or the previous generations where they just work through it. I always go about it, the what's the return? And that's become a lot more uh, important to me here in the, oh, the last probably four or five years. Well, since I had kids, started having kids and everything happened, family became way more important and it, it used to not be all right to just quit early and go do something with the kids for no reason, but that's a very important thing nowadays for me. It's just better for your mental health and also in that regard. I've heard similar stories a lot from the ag tech companies that I speak to. They cite how the younger generations on the farm are more interested in embracing technology because they see it as a way to work smarter instead of just working harder. And this gets back to not only those generational differences and the importance of taking care of yourself as the leader of the farm, but also to really understanding your numbers. Washington State hop and apple grower Patrick Smith took this to an extreme ultimately earning a master's from NYU in business analytics and starting a company to help other farmers and ag businesses make data-driven business decisions. He talked about his journey in episode 309. Started really looking outside of farming, outside of hops and apples at what other people are doing with data and analytics. And, you know, we would get creative with how we were acquiring data. We invented some new systems and technology to take data, you know, in our harvest uh, process in hops and, and try to understand some of our harvest process, specifically the drying process, a little bit better. And what I saw was that my skill set was reaching its limit. 
of what I knew how to do. And that was like, take one data set that was relatively clean and, you know, most likely in an Excel spreadsheet and do some really cool analysis on it, right? I could do that. But once it was multiple data sets and they were in multiple different places and, you know, one's in a SQL database over here and one is locked inside somebody's proprietary system over there and I can export CSV files. It was like, wait a second, how do I take this data that's in this system and this data that's in this other system and I know that they have a relationship and I wanna understand that relationship. How do I do that? And so that's where I decided to go back to school again and go outside of agriculture into business analytics at NYU. And I was the only person in our, in our cohort of, of 72 students that was in agriculture. And I was learning from people in, you know, ad tech, advertising technology. And I mean, gosh, you look at, you know, Google and Facebook, which are basically advertising companies, but we think of them as social media or search engines, but essentially an advertising company and how they use data and how like mind-blowing the stuff that they can do is. And I just think about the complexity of our systems on the farm and in agriculture and think, if you could measure everything that's out there, what would you uncover? What would you discover about your farm, about your crop, about that plant that you didn't know? And the data set would be massive. I mean, how many microbes are in a handful of soil, right? Like, how do you characterize them all? And then how do you characterize their influence on the plant? And so it was mostly this curiosity of mine to just understand what I had been doing, what my family had been doing for four generations better and wanting to look outside of, of farming and outside of hops and apples for some guidance. This relentless pursuit of finding ways to do things better is also what drives our next farmer innovator, Kelly Garrett. Kelly and his family farm and raise cattle in Iowa. He's also one of five founding partners of Extreme Ag, which is a platform for farmers who want to improve their operations and their ROI to share ideas and experiences with one another. Kelly said Extreme Ag tends to attract farmers who are out-of-the-box thinkers. The most expensive words in agriculture, that's the way we've always done it. And everybody that gravitates toward extreme ag, the partners or the members, they all just want to do better. It isn't that we've necessarily been doing it wrong or the generations of the past have been doing it wrong. It's just that don't stop learning. Continue to learn. Continue to try to get better. You know, I heard one speaker say, if you can't take 10% of your acres, and research with those and conduct trials, you're already broke. You just don't know it yet. And that's the common mindset. Everybody that comes into extreme ag really just wants to do better. And they're not afraid to try. And a box doesn't exist for us because we're not afraid to look at everything from a different perspective. Whoever would have thought we'd be talking in Iowa about turning our anhydrous down in a high yielding area, 60 pounds, and spraying a product on it seven tenths of an ounce per acre and getting a yield gain. If that's not the definition of outside the box, I don't know what is. Now, you may have already guessed that the product Kelly was just referring to is Source by Sound Agriculture. To finish off today's episode, I sat down with Kelly as well as his partner in yet another venture, Integrated Ag Solutions, Mike Evans. Mike is an agronomist with over 15 years of experience. Two years ago, Mike and Kelly joined forces to form Integrated Ag to consult with farmers and bring new ideas and new products to the market in the local area. I sat down with both of them to hear about 
their experiences after using Source this past year. I met SoundAg or, you know, some representatives from SoundAg at a Truterra carbon event in Hollywood, Florida last February. And, you know, talked to the CEO, things like that. He had heard of Extreme Ag. And I said, you know, what their product does, you know, we we're pretty interested in. And we came home, talked to Mike about it. And then actually, uh, John, a friend of mine that we go to church with, 2022 was his third year in testing uh, Source, which, you know, SoundEgg's product is Source. But uh, it was John's third year at testing Source, and he'd had great results. So that gave us even greater confidence. And then the research that Evans and I have been under and working towards, we know, Tim, that we want, for example, 10 parts phosphorus for every one part of zinc. And we also know that we want seven parts carbon for every one part of nitrogen. And a lot of times in farming, you know, the holy grail of farming, especially in Iowa, is let's raise corn. The holy grail of raising corn is let's turn up the anhydrous. And we now are kind of of the belief that, or at least the theory or the hypothesis, that we're putting too much synthetic in into our high-yielding no-till soils because you are, um, we are constantly amazed at how much elemental N can be released. So we're screwing up that ratio. So we either need to turn down the nitrogen or we need to figure out a way to add carbon. Well, obviously from an input cost perspective, why wouldn't we turn down the nitrogen? So we have started with our source test. We are turning down that nitrogen, adding source, and on a 300 acre trial, we had a 24 bushel yield gain. And I truly believe, Tim, it's because we're bringing that ratio back into balance. We all believe we need to build the soil. We have special soil. We just don't know very much about it. It's not about building. It's about balancing the soil. And Source helps us do that. And, and I could see being able to dial down the nitrogen and getting the same yield. But what do you think actually increases it? That's still kind of a mystery to me. Because if you were, if you think at some level, you've got an adequate threshold of nitrogen. And so what do you think actually increases the yield? I believe it truly is that balance of that ratio. When you have too much of one element and not enough of another, it's a yield limiting factor. And if we could ever get to a spot where we had everything balanced, there's a lot of special potential there in that soil and with that corn plant. And the yield gain comes from the balance. You, like you say, you got to have enough nitrogen, but you also have to have enough carbon. You know, uh, the three most important elements in corn production are not N, P, and K. It's carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen. Carbon's 45% of the plant. Oxygen's 45% of the plant. Hydrogen is 6.6% of the plant. And ag retail talks about the other 3.4%. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we brought it into balance because carbon is so important. Very interesting. So I, the balance seems like such a delicate thing. How do you keep balance in field, especially where you've got a lot of variability? How do you keep in field variability at balance? <laughs> I, I tell you, Tim, if, if I knew it, I, I wouldn't be sitting in my house. I'd be on some beach in the Caribbean. It is a challenge, but I think the first part of that is being aware of it. I think in the last two years, we've become very aware of it. At least, you know, Kelly and I working together before, we never even thought about it. You know, we were just worried about how many pounds per bushel did we need to raise three or four or 500 bushel corn, right? So in the last year, we've done a lot of work on figuring that out. So now we're working on how do we, how do we manage that through the year? And one thing in the agricultural world, we only get one year to do it. It's not like we can have month after month, you know, we get one crop season to figure everything out. Then we got to do it again. So I was in a meeting a long time ago and a guy talked about most people only plant corn about 20 to 30 times in their lifetime, which ain't a lot of tries, you know. And one of the ways that we try to manage it, and this is, Mike is really good at this, 
is variable rate technology. Our corn seeding rec ranges from 22,000 seeds per acre up to 35. Our anhydrous rec on like a rotated field, you know, on bean stubble, we've now turned it in a high yielding area. We've turned the anhydrous all the way down to 80 pounds. And in the low yielding area, we're at 240. Because in the low yielding area, you know, in Western Iowa here in the hills with the base saturation problems we have, the ground is not releasing the elemental nitrogen. But in the high yielding area, area, Tim, there's a tremendous amount of elemental nitrogen that's available to be released, and the source helps us pull that out. And that's what is bringing that balance, and that's what's showing that yield gain. You know, I talk about a 300-acre trial with a lot of side-by-sides and things like that, and it averaged 24 bushel. But in a low-yielding area, it's more like 7 or 8 bushel. In a high-yielding area, I told sound, I hesitate to say it, but it was 50 bushel. The difference was 193 to 243, and that's because of the balance we're talking about. That's in a high-yielding area, down in a draw, tremendous organic matter. You know, this year was so dry, but, you know, there's probably a little extra moisture down there, things like that. And we're just starting to scratch the potential on what's possible. But the short answer to your question is variable rate technology, because the soil is infinitely variable, especially where we live in these hills. Right. And you might have just uh, answered my next question, or at least in part, which is, okay, these 300 acres went well, and it sounds like you had kind of some varying levels of success within that. Uh, how are you deciding where to put this next or, or how to approach it for next year? I believe it'll probably be on every acre. You know, typically we would like to test something for a couple, three years before we go over every acre. But with John's success with sound, and then not only, you know, we had one year of success, but the theories that Mike and I have kind of come to together, it's, it's very nice when you can come up with a thought and a plan, and then it works out. So that gives us even increased confidence on that. So we will put it on every acre. We have turned the nitrogen down. You know, we've got our anhydrous on this fall, except for the last couple hundred acres. But we have got it on, and I believe it's going to help. It's going to help a lot more in the high-yielding areas than it will the low-yielding areas because of what the soil has for potential. But it's on every acre of corn, or will be. Well, Mike, what didn't we get to that you wanted to mention about this uh, experience with with Source? I think it's a great product for people to look at. You know, when we started down this path and Kelly came to me after that meeting, um, I'd have been researching. It was kind of fortuitous that he came that day because I was kind of looking at it too and I just hadn't brought it to him because I had a couple of colleagues mention it to me as well. They had some success and really intrigued me. You know, we were always trying to find ways to get some kind of season push. In Kelly's operation, we can't wide drop tall corn, you know, iron blight's a huge issue. So that was very intriguing. And I really recommend from the results we've seen, guys, take a look at it. All right. Well, thank you to Kelly and Mike for sharing those experiences. And really, thank you to all of these farm innovators that I was able to feature here on today's episode. Uh, Whenever I do sort of these compilation type episodes, I get into it and realize it's a lot bigger of a project than I thought it was going to be because there's just so much interesting and insightful information shared by these guests. And I want to thank each and every one of them that we featured here today and everyone else who was a part of this show this past year. It really has been a great year for the show. To learn more about Source product, just go to sound.ag. Thank you, Sound Agriculture, for being the quarterly presenting sponsor uh, this year. Also, if you're interested in Extreme Ag, you can go to their website. It's just extremeag.farm, 
T-R-E-M-E-A-G.farm, extremeag.farm. We'll link to them in the show notes as well. I hope you got as much value and perspective from these farm leaders as I did. Headed into 2023, I would love to hear what questions you're wrestling with about your farm ag business or just the future of agriculture in general. If you'd be so kind, I'd love it if you would just email me, tim at aggrad.com or tweet me at Tim Hamrich. Let me know what questions are on your mind. We could even set up a call if that'd be helpful to you because I'd just like to hear more about uh, what's going on with those that listen to this show. So feel free to reach out. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. Have a very Merry Christmas and I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. 